Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, with Pastor John King. We're going to be in uh, 1 Timothy. If we uh, send an email out, uh, you may have received that. We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. As you're uh, finding your way to that part of your Bibles or your tablets or your phones, um, I would uh, I would just want to welcome you to this first message. It's uh, sometimes referred to these letters to Timothy and to Titus are referred to as the pastoral epistles. Um, up to this point, if you've been following along through our journey through the New Testament on Sundays, Paul's letters were written to churches and congregations. But the two letters to Timothy, one to Titus and technically one to Philemon, are addressed to individuals. The letters to Timothy and Titus are instructional letters written from an older apostle who is maybe sensing the, uh, the time to pass the baton. He's, he knows that uh, he needs to raise up leaders and pastors. And so he's sending them these letters uh, as instructional um, to pass along things that would be crucial for young pastors to understand. Things like church organization and discipline, uh, matters such as the appointment of elders and deacons, which we will see, and then, of course, the opposition of rebellious members or false teachers, and also the maintenance of doctrinal purity. In them, we will see that Paul cared deeply for the churches that he had founded and the men he sent to lead them as he made sure to include these various warnings and instructions. So this is really, what you're going to see in these letters is Paul, the apostle, discipling and how he disciples young pastors. This letter, 1 Timothy, was most likely written sometime between A.D. 61 and 64. And it is widely believed to have been during a time when Paul was traveling between two Roman imprisonments. He wrote Timothy to encourage him in his responsibility to oversee the work of the Ephesian church, which Paul spent quite a long time there. I think he spent uh, nearly three years there. It was the longest uh, pastorate that he had. And so just if you're taking notes, let's just it, there's three things to remember about Paul's purpose for this letter. The first one is to encourage Timothy in his walk as a Christian. To encourage Timothy as his, in his walk as a Christian. The second purpose is to warn against false teaching. And you're going to see how that came into play uh, in today. Also, he wanted to, and this is probably one of the most important parts, and also in today's day and age somewhat controversial, is to teach church order and conduct. And so, in your study guides, in your notes, uh, you're going to want to mark uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Because this is where Paul gives the very explicit reasons. He said, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. So before we get, begin and go any further, let's just bow our heads for a quick prayer. Father, 
We thank you, Lord, for giving us this wonderful look at a apostle and his love and care for a young pastor, a young Christian, or not young Christian, but a young pastor and a young leader of a church uh, there in Ephesus, Lord. And as we read through this uh, study, Lord, I just pray and ask that you would just help us to um, do what Paul says, you know, in the sense of the things that he says to Timothy, the commands that he gives him are so important even for us to this day. Otherwise, you would not have included them in your Bible. You would not have inspired them to be written, and you would have not had them placed for us to read today, 2,000 years later. And so, Lord, I simply ask that you would just take these, these words, that they would speak to our hearts, to my heart, and that it would result once again in, in lives that are affected and changed and impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the most important thing that we have to share, the most important thing that we can cherish in this life. And so go before us today, this morning, as we begin this new journey uh, in the First Timothy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to see here very quickly, well, not maybe not so quickly, the first two verses of the letter. Um, again, you have the apostle and the disciple. And so he says in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. And then he gives a triple blessing. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we, we've been reading these letters long enough. You guys understand that how they write letters and wrote letters in the ancient times, they would do it in this, this fashion. Paul, right away, identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And... By way of review, what is an apostle? Um, well, it's, it's a messenger. It's somebody who is sent with orders. An apostle is a representative of the one who sent him. In this case, Jesus Christ. He belongs to a king, if you were looking at a messenger, like an ambassador in our modern day. Uh, he belongs to a king or country that sent him out. He has been commissioned by that king, and he possesses the authority of the one who sent him. And in that, that day and age, now we may think, ah, big deal, everybody lies, nobody tells the truth, ambassadors to countries aren't really that important anymore, but they really are very much so. But, you know, in those days, they took it seriously. When an envoy or an ambassador came to a place from another place, they knew that that person had the authority of the person that sent them, the king that sent them. And so in this case, think about it. The Apostle Paul has the authority of Jesus Christ to send these letters and to visit these churches. But also, what we see here is by the commandment of God our Savior. A commandment is a mandate. It's an injunction. And it's. I think before we talk about commandments so much. Look at the fact that says God our Savior. You know, God was the first one to love us. He's the one and only source of our salvation. You know, God is the initiator. 
In John 3.16, very familiar passage, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, God Himself, reaches out to us. He also says, And the Lord Jesus, our hope. Our hope. And it's, it's really important. The author of our hope and the foundation of our salvation. Not maybe, but most certainly. He will always he is and he always will be. We live in a world where men and women, you and I perhaps, we long and we hope for things that we think will bring us fulfillment. Security is something we long for, completeness, if you will. Things like recognition, acceptance, self-esteem, friendship, possessions, even religion. And, and most people have the hope of eternal life, if you ask them. They, they believe, you know, unless they're full-on, you know, uh, atheist or agnostic, they have a hope that there's something beyond this life. And a person, when you and I, a person realizes that these things that I just mentioned, the list of things that we hope for and we long for, don't really deliver on their promises. There is only now one hope remaining. And that's God. We've all probably heard the analogy of how people are created with a God-shaped hole in their soul. One that only He can fill. And so when you become a Christian, Jesus Christ becomes you, your person, as a, and He becomes your hope of glory. The hope that you have. He is all that you really needed, ever, once you realize that. And He is all that you ever really truly wanted. And that's what's found in Jesus. And we know from church history, we know from modern day uh, martyrs, that people believe in this so strongly, their hope in Christ, that they will take it all the way to the grave, and, and in the case of martyrs, to their execution for their faith. You have Ignatius of Antioch, he was a disciple by the Apostle John. And he would take the hope of our Lord to his execution. He was quoted to have saying on his way to being executed in Rome, he, uh, he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said to be of good cheer in God the Father and in Jesus Christ our common hope. You've probably heard of another disciple of John the Apostle, Polycarp. He wrote, Let us therefore persevere in our hope and the earnestness of our righteousness, who is Jesus Christ. So people, you know, we, we take it seriously. If you're a believer, we take our hope with us all through life and all the way to the grave. When Paul writes an intro to his letters concerning his apostleship, it has been up to this point, now that you're familiar with them, uh, he says he's always he refers himself as being called to be an apostle or by uh, or through the will of God is part of his first things he would say. But what you have here is is, is significant because this is the first place, and there'll be another place in Titus where he he claims that his apostolic position was due to a divine commandment by God. I mean, you can say I'm called to. You know, receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm called to do the work of the ministry, whatever God's called you to do. But are you bold enough 
to say that this was a commandment of God, that God commanded you to do this? Have you heard from God in the way that Paul heard from God? We know that he heard the, the mind of God and the voice of God. Why is that significant, the fact that he was commanded? Well, Paul is getting ready to pour out instruction, guidance that is both confident and authoritative. And of, of course, it's also very encouraging. And when we see, uh, as we see the false teachers, they had a bunch of confidence in things they didn't have a clue about. But here Paul has much confidence in the things that God has called him to do. Timothy needed to hear that. The church in Ephesus needed to hear it through Timothy. And so do we. Otherwise, why waste our time? Why waste our time coming to church and study God's Word if we didn't believe that we needed to hear what God had to say to us? Amen? Amen. And of course, that's Paul. Now we come to Timothy, the disciple. It says to Timothy, a true son in the faith. A true son meaning genuine and sincere. And in the faith, like Paul, he had true faith in Jesus Christ. And then, as I mentioned, grace, mercy, and peace. The, the, the triple blessing, if you will. Normally he says grace and peace. But here he throws in mercy right in the middle of it. We know that grace is loving kindness. It's the favor that's given to guilty sinners like you and I. It's the things that we receive that we don't deserve. And then mercy is God's kindness or goodwill to, toward those in need. God sees our need by providing and offering our salvation in Christ. If we didn't have salvation in Christ, we are dead in our sin. We're dead in our trespasses. And so God shows mercy. And of course He says peace. Peace with God. And that peace with God brings the peace of God to us. And we'd like to combine those into the Hebrew word shalom. The, the true peace that you can have in Christ. And so He says where does it come from? From God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Always the source of these important blessings. Now Timothy was, a, was from a town uh, it's called Lystra, which is in south-central Turkey, and I believe it's still there to this very day. He was from a home with a mixed marriage. His mother, is, her name was Eunice, and she was Jewish, and his father was a pagan Greek. You read about that in Acts 16. Scholars believe that Timothy was converted to Christ as a young boy when Paul came through town on his very first missionary trip. And it was a memorable trip for Paul because he was almost stoned to death. You can read about that in Acts chapter 14. Now when Paul came back to Lystra on his second missionary trip, he arranged to have Timothy become one of his missionary partners. I mean, this, Timothy's faith was evident to all around, and so Paul sought to commission him and to bring him into the fold, if you will. Timothy was highly esteemed, as you're going to see, and deeply loved by Paul. Again, a true son in the faith. And uh, John Stott said, by the time this letter was written, Timothy was still young. He was possibly in his mid-30s as a pastor. Also, we're going to notice some things about Timothy is the fact that he is very different from Paul in many respects. 
He's young, he's shy, he's timid, and he also suffers from poor health. He has uh, nagging stomach problems. Uh, You'll see that in in, in chapter 5. In other words, Timothy is not an imposing or an intimidating person at all. Someone you would probably like being with, depending on your own disposition. I like what Kent Hughes wrote about this. He said, and when, when talking about God's uh, being able to achieve, achieve His purposes through our lives, it says, God can in- achieve His purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on Him made possible the unique display of His power and grace. We get in the way of God. He chose and used somebody's only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. You have to surrender everything. Whatever natural abilities God has graced you with, whatever resources God has provided for you, you have to surrender them for the Lord to work in you and through you. Now, young Timothy needed every bit of blessing from God, these blessings of grace, mercy, and peace, in order to do what he was called to do. And in this case, he was called to teach the Ephesian church how to conduct themselves in God's household. Think of the shoes he's having to fill. This was Paul's, one of his you know, most well-founded churches, one of the largest churches at that time in the entire world. And here he was, there was they were surrounded by all this paganism. I mean, everywhere you turn, there was there were billboards and there were uh, bars and there were temples and you know, you could just imagine it was a, a place that was surrounded by all these philosophies and false religions and here you have this these little churches, these early Christian churches. And Paul can't get there, as you're going to see, so he sends Timothy back. He says, I need you to stay there. This is important. Because there's some stuff going on that needs to be dealt with. And so here's young Timothy. (laughs) You and I also need... I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, but you and I also need everything that the Lord has for us to live as a community of believers. Are you ready for that? Are you willing each and every day to receive everything that He has for you? Am I? I hope so, because we need Him. Our next section, we start right away. Now, Paul, you know, he the introductory is over. He's you know that knows who it's from, who it's to, but now he gets right down to the brass tacks. He's going to start talking about purity and doctrine. The church must oppose error and uphold the truth in this world. It's active. It's an active decision by the church. And he said to him in verse 3, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, 
desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. And so, right away in verse 3, he's, he's commanded by Paul, he's urged by Paul to basically take this true faith and apply it and confront the error that's going on at that church. He said, remain in Ephesus that you may charge. Now, to charge someone is to order them or command them. Remember, we said the authority that the Lord had passed on to Paul, the commandment that was given to Paul, was now in turn through Paul to Timothy. He had the same authority. And he says, you charge some that they teach no other doctrine. The word doctrine and teaching are very similar they have somewhat the same meaning. It's basically instruction or te- what a teacher teaches. And uh, we're going to see, uh, he said, charge some. Now, uh, near the end of this chapter, we won't see it today, uh, but in verse 20, he actually names names. He, calls, uh, he says, uh, these false teachers, two of them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And then he even say, he makes the comment, whom I deliver to Satan that they may not learn, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Mm. So Paul is going to deal with them on a personal level, but um, he says here, no other doctrine. What does that mean? Well, it refers to false teaching. This is uh, people teaching doctrines that were different from the ones taught by Paul. They probably contradicted the things Paul said. And as we will see at the end of today's message, it was God Himself who entrusted the truth of God's Word to Paul. That's why he wrote so much of what we read in the New Testament, because it was God's Word given and entrusted to Paul Himself. So you see, Paul is not shy about declaring the truth. And as I said, he had committed it to Timothy. It was Timothy's responsibility, just as it is for you and I, to guard the faith. To guard the faith. And to pass the faith of God on to faithful people. That's why we teach children's church. Youth, that's why parents, you raise your children to be godly. You raise them in the instruction of the Lord because you want to guard the faith and you know that that is your responsibility. And it's my responsibility. And all pastors and leaders are called to do that. Now the Bible records that Paul had two visits to Ephesus. The first one one was when he planted the church, as I mentioned, and then remained there for nearly three years. If you wanted to read about that, you'd go to Acts 19. But in Acts 20, uh, as Paul was passing by the port of Miletus on his third missionary journey, going back to Jerusalem, He stopped in the port of Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. He sent for the Ephesian elders to do what? He wanted to warn them about false teachers. The Lord had put it on his heart. In fact, he referred to them as savage wolves. And that's in uh, Acts 20, verse 29. And so, he says, they will creep into the church, not sparing the flock. When you see Acts 20, verse 30, it says, 
also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So apparently what Paul was prophesying in a sense was uh, that, that false teachers and ravaging wolves would come into the church, but also false teachers would rise up within the church. And apparently, because of what we're reading today, the elders had not heeded Paul's warning. And they didn't, they didn't follow through on their call to protect the Word of God. And so now he instructed Timothy to charge them not to add or take away the doctrine of God's Word or formulate new doctrines. It's very important to recognize that the temptation, first of all, is very great for a church, a leadership, a pastor who maybe has some talent, maybe has some skill and has developed a following to want to say, you know, I'm tired of teaching the same old Bible. It repeats itself over and over and over again. And he, what, when they do that, what's happening is they are coming against God's command. They're taking away the doctrine of God's word from God's people. And they're formulating. What it leads into is formulating new doctrines and new teachings. He gives examples. He says in verse 4, he says, Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. A fable is a fiction or an invention. It's a falsehood. False ideas and speculations of men about God and Christ and the teaching of God's Word. That's what the that's what a fable is as it applies to our belief and Christian walk. And not not only that, what they were involved in was endless genealogies. Um, a genealogy is a record. Uh, we know this is a record of, of your descent, your lineage. And this was a problem uh, for the Jews who took too much pride in the godliness of their forefathers thinking that the prestige of their stock would somehow rub off on them. Uh, we see that in our culture today. And Paul was familiar with this kind of thinking. Philippians 3, 4, and 5, he says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, you can see that, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. So Paul was familiar with this placing too much stock in, in genealogies. But notice what happens when they dabble in these things. They give heed to fables and these endless genealogies. It causes disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith, as he writes. In other words, if you have a King James Version, it says, which minister questions. We shouldn't be in the business of debating matters of controversy all the time uh, instead of answering questions. The Bible has answers for us, the things we need. But they were raising questions and sowing seeds of doubt. We see that as well in our day through what we call uh, deconstruction of Christians. Because they're sowing seeds of doubt. You know, They step outside the... the, the the, uh, the firm foundation of God's Word. It causes disputes rather than godly edification. Now, 
again, godly edification is more than what you think it means. It's, it's a word, oikonomia. This is administration or stewardship. We said earlier, something that's entrusted by God. And Paul, Paul is going to say, look, the Lord put me in charge to bring His Word to you. And so this administration is to be carried out by pastors, teachers, and leaders in the church. Which is in faith, which is the substance of what Christians believe. You know, we talk about faith. So it's, it's administrating or managing the truth that salvation and Christian, Christian living come by faith, not by works. You know, applying the Word of God to our lives. Now, just maybe this is helpful to understand that there was, there was plenty of written material to be found in the Jewish tradition. Um, just as we have endless sources of information for us to you know, get into and to read. But outside of the Old Testament writings, uh, Jewish traditions included the books such as the Book of the Jubilees, which was written uh, in 135 B.C. And this book is a fanciful rewrite, according to Hughes, of the Old Testament history from creation to Sinai. Somebody actually went out and decided they were going to rewrite the entire Bible history and publish it. And so, you know, we see, uh, we talk about AI today. AI is going to make a Bible for us. And combine all the best of all the different um, world religions, I suppose. And we see this also, you know, later on. So the point is, there's plenty of stuff out there you can read that can cause you to question your faith and the Word of God. Now, verse 5, Paul, he brings it back around. He says, look, this is what's been happening. But he said, now he's, he says, you need to concentrate, Pastor Timothy, you need to concentrate on the end goal. What is that? It's love and the attributes of love. Those are the things that, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna concentrate on something and harp on something, well, that's a great place to be is love. And so the end goal here, he says, now the purpose of the commandment, verse five, is love from a pure heart. We know that God commands believers to love God and to love others. Is a paraphrase from Matthew twenty-two. It means we know the love of God. And we love God. And we love and respect fellow Christians as family. And we love the lost of the world by bringing the gospel. But where does this agape love come from? He, he says three sources. If you're taking notes, there's three sources. First of all, from a pure heart. From a good conscience. And from sincere faith. In order to have a pure heart... That's a heart that's for, forgiven by God and cleansed from impurities. You've come to salvation. You have you know, come to receive the Lord. It's sincere. It's not false. And it should be free from corrupt desire. Now, we know that we, we must come to the altar of grace. We must come and receive forgiveness from the Lord because that part of sincere, not false, and free from corrupt desire keeps creeping up in our hearts and in our bodies, in our flesh. And you ladies that are studying the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Amen. 
not only from a pure heart, but a good conscience. Yes. Now, a conscience, a good conscience, first of all, conscience has been defined as one's inner awareness of the quality of one's own actions. You being aware of the quality of your actions, whether they're good or bad. And so you want to be have a good conscience. And what does that mean? That you're free from guilt. Because we're going to take communion today. There may be some of us who have some guilt inside that needs to be dealt with before the Lord as we you know, come before Him and ask for His forgiveness. There may be people even here today that we need to make things right with if we're aware of that. And so, pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Sincere means undisguised and without hypocrisy. It is so easy for us in our culture to put on the church face, isn't it? Everything's fine. The church face and the church smile. How's it going, sir? Yeah, it's going great. Have a nice day. Bless your heart. Whatever. <laughs> so obviously, these sources of love can only come from God. And this is why you and I need to be what? Spirit-filled, prayerful, and repentant. That's a life we live. You think that? that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Okay? Have it your way. Go ahead and live a life in your own strength. Go ahead and never talk to God. Go ahead and never ask for forgiveness from Him. And then come back and tell me how that's going for you. Because we all fall short. We, you and I, receive His forgiveness and make it our priority. Now this is important. After we receive His forgiveness, we make it our priority to learn of His love more and more. We don't just check blocks with God in our relationship. If you're married, you don't just check blocks for your, with your spouse. You have to learn more and more and desire to love that person. And this takes total commitment and willingness on your part. In verse 6, he says, he points out the error of turning aside, you know, wasting your time talking about these fruitless discussions. He says, which from some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. To have strayed means you've kind of swerved, you've taken a left or a right away from the faith. Some would say maybe backslidden, some would say, well, I'm deconstructing, whatever the modern terminology is. But you've strayed, you've swerved. And you've turned aside, where'd you go? Well, you went to idle talk. Have you ever been with somebody who says a whole lot of stuff? King James Version says, vain jangling. <laughs> you want to, will you please stop your vain jangling? I don't know if we're going to have that in conversation between each other. But people can say a whole lot of empty and random talk. Babble, if you will. I know it's a function at some point in your life. It may be a, a function of your getting older. I do understand that. Believe you me. But some people make it very common to just kind of turn aside to idle talk. What they had to say doesn't bring uh, encouragement. It doesn't bring wisdom. It doesn't bring grace. It doesn't bring peace to their heart. 
And when it comes to what the church is called to do, as, a, as a, we teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, instead of teaching or simply teaching the Word simply, which is what we aim to do, they want it to be creative and innovative on their own instead of sticking with the power of the Gospel. <coughs> the power of God's Word. Let the Word of God do its work is what he's saying. And then he goes a little further to describe them. He says, desiring in verse 7 to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Now this is where you get your, uh, your world of experts. We have a world of experts, don't we? YouTube commandos. They, they don't understand the first thing about what they're saying, but they say it very well. And they actually are very falsely confident about what they're saying. I mean, you got to wonder about that sometimes, man. That, that person really comes across as believing this nonsense that they're saying, that they're teaching. We see it all the time. And this was happening in that church. The elders in Ephesus, these ones who were doing this, according to one writer, said they aspired to be Christian versions of rabbis. They were authoritative interpreters of the deep things of the Old Testament. In imitation of their rabbinic counterparts, they spoke with assured confidence and dogmatism, though they did not know what they were talking about. The modern preacher's version of the bluster described here is uh, the marginal note in his preaching manuscript. Weak point here, look confident and pound the pulpit. Now look, I'm not saying you can't pound the pulpit. That can hurt. So don't do it. I would, I'm not that type of person. In grim reality, they had apostatized and wandered away from love. Remember, that's the goal, is love into controversy. Away from pure hearts and good consciences to duplicity and religious insincerity. And if you don't think people can notice that today, trust me, they can. They can, and they will. And they'll say goodbye. <coughs> we talked a little bit earlier about uh, having trusting in your own stock. I, I, I call it, uh, it's not probably not original to me, salvation by osmosis. Especially in the Bible Belt. It's this false comfort that comes from having a godly heritage. You know, my family's church. I meet people all the time, young people. I go to my parents' church. I go to my family's church. That is great. There's nothing wrong with that. But you can grow up so close to your family members, your parents, your grandparents, your local pastor, friends, that you think because of that close association that you have with them, you're saved as well. And it's not so. It's not true. Because everyone must, as Pastor Nick was so famous, he say, everyone must do business with God personally. Every single person. Not through the faith of others. It's not going to work. We talk about the end goal of pastoral teaching and counseling is to grow in the love of God. I mean, you're not, maybe um, you're not aware of what's happening at the moment when you're teaching or you're counseling somebody, 
But if, if I will keep in my mind learning from Paul's instruction to Timothy, the end goal is to grow in the love of God. You know, looking a little bit farther beyond the circumstances, the immediate circumstances. And it starts with truth and doctrinal purity. Not for the sake of being right or to appear intelligent or full of knowledge. It's, a, it's to promote and cultivate a clean heart and a good conscience. Uh, David Guzik said this. This is really for all of us, okay? Um, if, if you and I spend time in God's Word and it does not produce love from a pure heart, a good conscience, or sincere, sincere faith, then something is wrong. Something's wrong. Legalism may take, make us twist God's Word so that instead of showing love, we are harsh and judgmental. Instead of having a good conscience, we always feel condemned knowing that we don't measure up. Instead of sincere faith, we practically trust in our own ability to please God. Remember, folks, there's nothing new under the sun. So I heard some discussions this morning talking about this. Um, we're increasingly being presented with new truth through progressive Christianity. But what it does, as I said, it denies the timeless truth of God's Word. No teaching, not anywhere, not here, anywhere, no Bible teaching should contradict Scripture. I mean, we may get it a little mixed up now and again, but it should never come directly against Scripture. I want to say something that I, I think is uh, not so much an issue, but I've heard it come up on occasion. And it's, it's probably more of an issue for Bible teaching churches. And sometimes we'll even hear it among ourselves. Pastors are sometimes criticized for emphasizing this, this thing we've been talking about, sound doctrine. People will say things like, I don't need more doctrine. I need practical preaching. You may have heard that. You may have said that. I don't need more teaching. I don't need more doctrine. I need something practical. I need to be able to apply God's Word. And fair enough. There, there needs to be a connection between teaching and practice. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean less doctrine. That doesn't mean less teaching. Because doctrine is at the heart of practical living. As one writer put it, he asked the question, he says, do you love God now? Will you love Him less if you learn more about Him? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not. You will love Him more. The more you learn of His excellencies, His holiness, His grace, His mercy, His love, the greater you will be able to grasp His character and the closer to Him you will draw. The greatest need of the church today, and I agree, is not less doctrine, but more doctrine about God, about salvation, about ourselves, about character, about church, and about family. Not something we invent and bring to you and say, Here, here's a new way of looking at things. Our greatest need is to know God better 
And we can only do that through His Word. Now, look, if I'm raising my voice and shouting at you, it's because, uh, not because I don't think you believe that. You come to this church faithfully. Maybe for those that perhaps would hear it recorded. <laughs> All right, very quickly, we're going to go through these last uh, four verses, five verses. Verses 8 through 11. He says, but we know. Now he's going to talk about the proper use of the law. We, we talk about the law of God. He said that the end goal is love. But look, let's talk about the proper use of the law. Because you can't ignore, ignore the fact that we have the Ten Commandments out there on the hallway. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The proper use of the law. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, and for the unholy and profane. For instance, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's anything other thing which is contrary to sound doctrine. So he puts that right in there. With the, you know, the big ones, right? Teaching false doctrine is the same. That's where you come under the law of God and under the commandment of God. And then he says in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Remember, he is given from God the trust. So the, we've heard this before, but the truth is the law is good. The law is good if it's used lawfully. <coughs> Why is the law good? Well, first of all, those Ten Commandments that you see out there in the hallway, that you see in your Bible, where'd they come from? God. They came from God. Is God bad or evil or wicked? No. So the law is good. What it does is it expresses His holy character to us. It provides... For society, guardrails for society, you know, murdering and stealing and all the things that are in there are not good for society. It is something that we can measure against. It cannot save you. The law, keeping the law, cannot save you, but it will show you your need for redemption through your Savior, hopefully your Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes. So he says the law is good if it's used properly. If it's used legitimately. Now, folks, here as as people, you know, people are basically religious. I don't, I don't care. You know, again, there's very few true atheists out there. People are basically religious, and we love our religion because our flesh, our old nature, loves to have a set of rules and regulations that we can outwardly check the blocks, as we were saying. They come in the form of good works, faithful church attendance, and conservative opinions in some cases. You and I can appear to be holy on the outside without having a, not a single change of heart on the inside. That's called legalism. And this is what false teaching can lead you and I to. So these so-called teachers in that church were missing or misusing the Old Testament law. And Paul is going to set the record straight. And so he's done that. The law was given to incriminate the lawless, not the righteous. 
We have the Ten Commandments in the hallway, and right across the hallway we have our missionaries and the calling to go out into the world to be do good courage. To me, what that shows is sort of a picture, an illustration. Those apart from Christ who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to stand before God on the basis of those Ten Commandments. And facing those Ten Commandments are those people that go out, and hopefully us as well, who bring the good news of the Gospel to the world around us. So that that law no longer is hanging over your head. That's why we put it that way. That's why we, we placed it there. And so when he says the law is not made for a righteous person, he means the law was not made for believers because Jesus paid the price on your behalf. When a sinner believes on Jesus Christ, he is freed from the curse of the law and the righteous demands of the law are met by the indwelling Holy Spirit as a believer yields to God. The reason why the Ten Commandments have no power to condemn the Christian is not because they have no authority over the Christian. They don't condemn you, but they have authority of you. But because Christ has fulfilled them, uh, Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it's not like we say, oh, I don't have to think about the Ten Commandments. No, you've changed. Your heart is different. You don't want to live the life that you once lived. You don't want to be a stealer, a murderer, an adulterer, any of those things. You don't want to be a liar. You don't want to bear false witness because Jesus lives within you. And so that authority over you has been placed in your heart by God. The law, then, is a governor that points to the glorious gospel. That's what it does. And so that's why we have the Ten Commandments pointing to those who bring the gospel. And that's verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the glorious gospel, it's not the, the law that saves anyone. It's the glorious gospel. And Paul says it was committed to my trust and I'm going to stand up for it and I'm going to give it to you, Timothy, and I'm going to call every pastor, every teacher, every leader, every Christian family member who's leading people, every believer to commit and to continue that faith from generation to generation until the Lord returns. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.